Hi listener, this is From My Geology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favour of meaning, purpose and unity as a whole. Right, today I'm doing another reading and this time it's The Birth of Tragedy by Friedrich Nietzsche. And yeah, so this is going to be interesting, I think. The reason I chose this is partly because it is like intuitively I was drawn to it, I guess. And also what I noticed is that um, when I'm looking at the blurb, it does, it's fueled by Nietzsche's enthusiasms. Nietzsche's first book is fueled by enthusiasms for Greek tragedy, the philosophy of Schopenhauer, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, but whatever. And the music of Wagner, to whom this work is dedicated. So um, there's a whole bunch more in the blurb, but um, Schopenhauer is, um, the last episode I did was involved Schopenhauer. So it feels like it's linked. So it's just over like, what, 115 pages or something. It's not that long, really. I don't know how many episodes this will take, but yeah, this, this feels like it will be quite interesting. And um, to anyone who's looking at this on YouTube, uh, I'll show you a, a picture on the front. It looks quite nice. You notice one of these looks like a... Oh, no, that is a planet. That isn't like a spaceship. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, it's an interesting painting anyway. Right, so I'm going to get to it. So, Penguin Books, translated by Sean Whiteside, edited by Michael Tanner. The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music. Any other details? So, I'm covering myself. Um... This edition first published in 1993. We printed with chronology in 2003. Penguin Books, 80 Strand, London, England. And there's a whole bunch of other places too, but uh, yeah, I'm not gonna give any more information than that because I'm sure you wanna hear me uh, read this out. So. I'm skipping the introduction where it talks about what he wrote. I'm just going straight to where Nietzsche started. Whatever it was that prompted this questionable book, it must have been the most important and attractive question and a deeply personal one. This is borne out, of, out by the time in which, in spite of which, it was written. The exciting time, the exciting time of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871, while the thunders of the Battle of Wolf rolled away over Europe, the brooding lover of puzzles, who was to be the father of this book, sat in some corner of the Alps, brooding and puzzled, and hence both concerned and unconcerned, writing down his thoughts about the Greeks, the kernel of the strange and somewhat inaccessible book to which this belated preface or postscript will now be added. A few weeks later, and he himself was to be found beneath the walls of Metz, still struggling with the question marks that he had apprehended to the supposed 
cheerfulness of the Greeks and Greek art, until at last, in the month of most profound suspense, when peace under, was under debate in Versailles, he too made peace with himself and slowly convalescing from an illness contracted in the field, gave definite form to the birth of tragedy out of the spirit of music. Out of music? Music and tragedy? Greeks and the music of tragedy? Greeks, the pessimistic art form? The most accomplished, most beautiful, most universally envied race of mankind, those most capable of seducing us into life. They were the ones who needed tragedy? Or even more, art? What for? Greek art? The reader might guess where the big question mark of the value of existence was raised. Is pessimism, pessimism inevitably the sign of decline, decadence, waywardness, of wearied, enfeebled instincts? As once it was with the Hindus, as it might seem to be with us modern Europeans? Is there a pessimism of strength, an intellectual predilection for what is hard, terrible, evil, problematic in existence, arising from well-being, overflowing health and abundance of existence? Is it perhaps possible to suffer from overabundance? A tempting and challenging sharp-eyed courage that craves the terrible as one craves the enemy, the worthy enemy against whom it contests its strength, wishing to learn from it the meaning of fear. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, the abundant, in one sense, is actually what you get when you're in touch with the divine, in a sense. But not material abundance, but real abundance. Though perhaps abundance is associated with as a material abundance. And so you might look at a loss of a material abundance and be like, "That's a, there's a decadence there, there's a decline there. Um, but is it necessarily that? Is there this other tendency where if we have abundance, we might actually crave difficulty Maybe it's the, maybe there's a desire on some self-conscious level for catalyst and that there's a lack of it that it's sought out. Or maybe what he seems to be suggesting is that people seek challenge. Was it souls that seek challenge? I'm going to read on to discern more. What is the meaning for those Greeks of the best, strongest, most courageous age of the tragic myth and of the tremendous phenomenon of the Dionysiac and of the tragedy that was born under it? And on the other hand, that which brought about the death of tragedy the Socratism of morality, the dialectics, modesty and cheerfulness of theoretical man, could not that very Socratism be a symptom of decline, fatigue, 
infection and the anarchal dissolution of the instincts? Might the Greek cheerfulness of the later Greeks be nothing but the glow of sunset? The Epicurean will against the pessimism merely a precaution of the afflicted? And science itself, our own science, what does all of science mean as a symptom of life? Might the scientific approach be nothing but fear, flight from pessimism? You know, maybe it's spiritual bypassing that he's talking about on some level um, when he's talking about the Epicurean. That on one hand, a, a focus on the positive things without acknowledging the darkness is perhaps out of fear of confronting it. And that perhaps the desire to go out and confront the negative and to test oneself is more of an honest acknowledgement of the duality of the world we find ourselves in and acting with acknowledgement of that understanding rather than a denial of that fact because that denial would be out of fear, whereas the acceptance of how it is would be an acceptance of dualism, acceptance of the existence of that darkness and willing to confront it nonetheless would actually be a bravery and actually more of the light. And the question is being asked here, what is really that of decadence of decline? Is it optimism or pessimism. Now there's a binary there, isn't there? There's a duality of polarity between optimism and pessimism. And perhaps it's not as simple as one or the other and choosing which one you you were gonna go with. And we'll see if that's what Nietzsche's saying. I suspect he's he's not simply saying, oh, go with with pessimism. We'll see. Interestingly, though, as well, he mentions science. Oh, let's carry on. Um, What does all of science mean as a symptom of life? Might the scientific approach be nothing but fear, flight from pessimism, a subtle form of self-defense against the truth? And morally speaking, something like cowardice and falsehood. Amorally speaking, a piece of cunning? Oh, Socrates, Socrates, was that perhaps your secret? Oh, secretive ironist, was that perhaps your irony? Is he suggesting that there's deeper, there's a depth behind what Socrates was saying, that he's saying one thing, but he means the opposite. He's almost like, and it's up for the esoteric to see behind the facade. Now, keep in mind is that Socrates was, we only hear about Socrates from Plato. We don't know if Socrates was actually real. It could have been made up by Plato, in which case it would be, in some sense, um, what's the word? a narrative device or something, or a 
you know, you use by Plato to illustrate a point. What the symbolism of Socrates' story and his philosophy and why he was killed for that, I don't really know. Um, I don't know. But it's interesting that he's talking about science itself as perhaps being an escape from that. Maybe there's this, uh, how to put it, a life, a dynamism of a sort of courageous age, let's say, of um, those who go out and they face life with all its hardships and that soul, science is trying to get past that, bypass that, overcome that with reasons so that you don't have to have that hardship because you have all this things being made easier and we don't need to directly confront that, that, that aspect of hardship. On the other hand, there was all sorts of hardship that came from science in a sense, but not directly as well how it's used. So maybe there is this desire to create the catalyst, no matter what the situation, maybe that's something that Nietzsche wasn't accounting for. When I got hold of them, when I, when I got hold of them, something terrible and dangerous, a problem with horns, not necessarily a bull, exactly, but at any rate, a new problem. Today, I should say that it was a problem of science itself. Science seen for the first time as problematic and questionable. But the book in which my youthful courage and suspicion were given vent. What an impossible book had to grow out of a task so unfavorable to youth constructed solely from pre-precocious, excessively personal experiences, all close to the boundaries of communication and presented within the context of art, given the context of science, a book perhaps for artists who enjoy analytic and retrospective abilities, an exceptional, exceptional kind of artist, exceptional kind of artist, then who is not easy to find, but whom one has no great wish to find. Hmm. An analytical and re retrospective artist not being wished for. Why? Full of psychological innovations and artist secrets against the background of an artist's metaphysics. A youthful work full of youthful courage and youthful melancholy, independent, definely self-reliant, even where it seems to yield to authority and respect of its own. In short, a first book, even in the worst senses of the term, racked with every youthful defect for all its old man's problems, terribly protracted and excitably portentous. On the other hand, given the success that it enjoyed, particularly with the great artist for whom it was intended as part of a dialogue, Richard Wagner, a proven book by which 
I mean, one that was good enough for the best minds of the day. Accordingly, it should be treated with a degree of discreet silence on my part. Nonetheless, I should not like to suppress entirely how disagreeable it seems to me now, how strange it is to me 16 years later, to an older eye, 16 times more discriminating, but no colder, no more alien to the task first tackled in this audacious book, to see science under the lens of the artist, but art under the lens of life. What is it that seems missing from science, from an artist's point of view? Life, maybe love, maybe beauty. Art under the lens of life, well, if intuition is the means by which art is done, or at least good art, um, if if and um, intuition actually gives you access to the divine, and life is the divine, and vice versa, then he's seeing. You can, in a sense, associate art as the divine or linked to the divine, and um, science is not linked to the lack of that. It's what you get is how, in a way, it's sort of replaced. Instead of priests being the authority, instead of truth being, uh, legitimate truth being discerned by those with access to spirit, or deemed to have access to spirit. What we ended up instead was those deemed to be in access, more access to the truth. The truth is associated as a divine thing, being in touch with the whole of reality, right? But now instead it became this stark mechanistic image. And, and to connect to that truth, that higher truth, is to be in line with inductive empiricism, in line with science, um, which is called, which deals with cold hard facts. So even the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were relatable in some sense um for all their flaws and the fact their flaws were either relatable in a sense um but what is really relatable about the new god or the new religion i'd say religion is more precisely what we're talking about here of the secular age is so heartless by comparison even when you consider how heartless the uh, Romanized religion is, because um, it makes it reduces religion to ritual, spirituality to rituals, to following rituals, to following 
I guess, habits and going through the motions in a lifeless sense. But what we get with the, 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 the enlightenment, the triumph of science and pure, pure reason without any divine divinity to it at all is the way reality functions is just simply seen as like a grand mechanism and the uh, in a Newtonian sort of sense. But the Einstein's idea of things even then was still starkly, starkly atheistic, I suppose, or physicalist, even if it wasn't seen quite as mechanistic um, it stretched it as far as it could go, the Newtonian sort of perspective. Once you get to the quantum stage, which Einstein really didn't like because of its mystic implications. Um, but it seems that Einstein was resistant to the truth in that sense. Uh, understandably so, I mean, when uh, physicalism has triumphed, I mean, like, it, when you're in that age, it's easy to see it within that paradigm. So the artists, the, the priests, determining how you can access truth, the authority on truth, are scientists, the priests of reason, or the priests of science, right? And... That is the, the emptiness that, of that, um, the starkness of that. Think of it like a desert, I suppose. That is, um, the artist can see the problem there, but it, even if they, these days, even if they can articulate the problem, they won't get taken seriously because everyone's conditioned by the priests of the era. The spirit of the age is a stark one at, the at this moment. So, and the art that we do get is largely postmodern, which is uh, lacking heart, I'd say. And art under the lens of life, well, intuition, art is done through intuition, which is linked to the divine and life. So, yes. All right. To say it once again, today I find it an impossible book, but badly written, clumsy and embarrassing. Its images frenzied and confused, sentimental in some places, saccharine sweet to the point of effeminacy even in pace, lacking in any desire for logical purity. So sure of its convictions that it is above than any need for proof and even suspicious of the proprietary, proprietary, right, property of proof. A book 
for initiates, music for those who have been baptized in the name of music and who are related from the first by their common rare experiences of art, a shibboleth for the first cousins in art, Artibus, an arrogant and fanatical book that wished from the start to exclude the profanum vulgus of the educated, even more than the people. Interesting. Is he talking about his own book in a second copy? Or was he talking about a different book? This section is called An Attempt at Self-Criticism. So, or maybe it was added on to, oh, this is from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I think, no, maybe it's not. Wait, give me a sec. Yeah, seems to be, um, he's talking about his own text in the book. The... No, no, he's quoted it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Let's just read it and see what we think without um, overthinking it. Yeah, it seems that he's talking about his book after the fact. But a book which, and its impact has shown and continues to show, has a strange knack of seeing out its fellow revelers and enticing them on to new secret paths and dancing places. What found expression here in any case, and this was conceded with both curiosity and distaste, was a strange voice, the disciple of a still unknown God disguised beneath the scholar's hood, beneath the heaviness and dialectical joylessness of the German, even beneath the bad manners of the Varg here was a spirit with strange as yet nameless needs, a memory bursting with questions, experiences, mysteries, to which the name of Dionysus was apprehended, appended, as yet another question mark. This was the voice, they say suspiciously, of something like a mystical and almost menadic soul, stammering laboriously, and at random in a foreign tongue, almost unsure whether it wished to communicate or some conceal. It should have been singing this new soul, not speaking. What a shame that I dared not say what I had to say then as a poet. I might have been able to do it, or at least as a philologist. Even today, almost everything in this field still remains undiscovered and unexcavated by philologists especially the problem that there is a problem here. And that the Greeks, as long as we have no answer to the question, what is Dionysiac, will remain entirely unrecognized and unimaginable. <sighs> okay. So what is Dionysiac? This book contains an answer, one who knows is speaking, the initiate and the disciple of his God, and disciple of his God. Perhaps I would now be more discreet, less eloquent, in discussing such a difficult psychological question as the origin of tragedy among the Greeks. One fundamental question is the Greek relation to pain, their level of sensitivity, 
Was that relation constant or did it radically change? I imagine he's talking about suffering, not physical pain. The question of whether their ever more intense craving for beauty, for festivals, entertainments, new cults, grew out of a lack, out of deprivation, melancholy, pain. If this is indeed so, and Pericles or Thudidaces would lead us to believe as much in his great funeral oration, what would be the origin of the opposite craving that occurred earlier in time, the craving for the tragic myth, the craving for ugliness, the good rigid resolve of older Greeks for pessimism, for the tragic myth, for the image of everything terrible, evil, cryptic, destructive, and deadly underlying existence. What then would be the origin of tragedy? Perhaps joy, strength, overflowing health, excessive abundance. And what then would be the meaning, physiologically speaking, of that madness out of which both tragic and comic art arose, the Dionysiac madness? What? What is the madness, not necessarily perhaps the symptom of degeneracy, decline, decline of the final stage of a culture? Is there perhaps such a thing, a question for psychiatrists as neuroses of health, of the young and youthfulness of a people? Where does that synthesis of synthesis of God and goat, the satyr point. What experience of himself, what impulse forced the Greek to imagine the Dionysiac reveler and primeval man as a satyr? And as regards to the origin of the tragic chorus, in those centuries when the Greek body flourished, when the Greek soul overflowed with life, might paroxysms not have been endemic? Might visions and her hallucinations not have been shared by the whole, by whole communities, by whole cult gatherings? And what if the Greeks, precisely in the abundance of their youth, had the will to tragedy? If they were pessimists, what if it was madness itself, to use a phrase of Plato's, that brought the gratings of blessings upon Greece? And if conversely, the Greeks precisely at the point of their dissolution and weakness became ever more optimistic, superficial, theatrical, more and more ardent for logic and logical interpretation of the world. And thus both more cheerful and more scientific, what then? Might we not assume in the face of all modern ideas and prejudices of democratic taste that the victory of optimism the now predominant reason, practical and theoretical utilitarianism, like democracy itself, with which it is covial, is a symptom of waning power, of approaching senescence, senescence of physiological fatigue, and precisely not pessimism. Was Epicurus an optimist precisely because he suffered? we can see what a heavy load of difficult questions this book has taken on. Let it add its most difficult question. What, under the lens of life, is the meaning of morality? Right, so there's a lot there. And I feel like we can go over that again, piece by piece. So, 
is madness not necessarily perhaps the symptom of degeneracy decline or final stage of a culture? Is there perhaps a thing, such a thing, a question for psychiatrists as neurosis of health? Hmm. There's lots of questions there. So there would the Greeks had a will to tragedy. But it's not necessarily pessimism that's that draws people to tragedy. And sometimes they don't know it will lead to tragedy. It can be good intentions. The youthfulness can be optimistic and yet marching towards the cliff and if you were to look at it from the outside you might say they're pessimists for seeking out that hardship but they might not know that's where they're going and at which point the distinction between optimism and pessimism we have to wonder if it's uh meaningful here And the alternative is, is there a madness to that? Um, on one hand, it could be seen as a seeking out of catalyst. If you were to be particularly uncharitable, you could say that the Greeks were influenced by archons and they, there was a serve to self culture and stuff like that. I, I feel like that would be overly dismissive, though, even if there might be some truth to that. And the idea that it's a blessing somehow, that there's a dynamic health, a I'm not sure what else to put it. There's a word that I, is not coming to me. But yeah, there's a dynamic dynamism, there's health to that. Or that their that dynamic health is what led them to it. What if their dissolution and weakness became ever more optimistic, superficial, and theatrical? Maybe there's there's something valuable about both sides of the Greeks there. I have a sense that's what's going to be said, because I know that there's this Dionysian and Apollonian, and I don't think... Nietzsche has said one is the good thing and one is the bad thing. I don't think it's that simple. And there's this other state thing later on, he says. Um, Might we not assume in the face of all modern ideas and prejudices of democratic taste that the victory of optimism the now predominant reason, practical and theoretical utilitarianism, like democracy itself, with which it is coval, is a symptom of waning power, of approaching senescence, of physiological fatigue, and precisely not pessimism. Physiological fatigue, not pessimism. That it might look like pessimism, 
but it's really the fatigue of a culture that might be seen as a decline, but fatigue is something which you just need rest from, for, right? Um, you know, it's discussing Epicurus and Epicureanism, which I can't recall. I think it's pursuit of... I can't remember what Epicureanism was about. And the idea that we can be optimists because we suffer, um, then that's interesting. What under the lens of life is the meaning of morality? Well, I don't have a clear answer for you here. Let's read on. Already in the preface to Richard Wagner, art and not morality is presently Art and not morality is presented as the properly metaphysical activity of man. In the book itself, the suggested principle is voiced a number of times. To the effect that the existence of the world is justified only as an ascetic phenomenon. In fact, the entire book knows only of one overt and implied artistic meaning behind all events, a God, if you will but certainly only an entirely thoughtless and amoral artist God, who in both creating and destroying, in doing both good and ill, wishes to experience that same joy and glory, who in creating worlds rids himself of the affliction of abundance and superabundance of the suffering of his internal contradictions. The world at every moment, the successful redemption of God, the ever changing, ever new vision the most afflicted, contrary, contradictory being, who can find redemption and deliverance only in illusion. We find we might deem the whole of this artist's metaphysic arbitrary, idle, and fantastic. What is significant about, about it is that it already betrays a spirit which will defy all risks to oppose the moral interpretation and significance of existence. Here we see heralded, perhaps for the first time, a pessimism beyond good and evil. We see formulated that perversity of attitude which, at which Schopenhauer never tired of hurling his most furious curses and thunderbolts. A philosophy that dares to demote morality and locate it in the phenomenal world, and not only among the phenomena, in the technical sense of the term used by idea, the idealists, but among the deceptions as illusion, delusion, error, interpretation, artifice, art. There's a stuffiness perhaps to morality. It depends what you define as morality, but there's a, what comes to me is this idea of there's religion with all its rituals and going through the motions that it is kind of heartless. Whereas spirituality is a more direct connection. And in fact, fact, art, I would say, is has much more common with spirituality or perhaps is spiritual. Whereas religion 
it can have spirituality in it, but it's more about following the rules and there's a control element, element to it, which fundamentally kind of takes it away from pure, being purely spiritual. Um, and perhaps that might be why Schopenhauer views morality as sort of highly a doctrine, a, a, a dogmatic a doctrine, a, a list of do's and don'ts in a rigid way as, as itself an illusion, an illusion, delusion, error, interpretation, artifice. But art? Schopenhauer opposed to art? No, we can't conclude that. The idea of God, that God, there's this idea evoked here that God would, both creating and destroying and doing both good and ill, wishes to experience the same joy and glory. So there is this idea that God wants to wonder that the divine wants to understand itself. And in doing so, it divides itself into the, the positive and the negative, essentially. And that the positive, in a sense, is everything that the is in alignment with the divine, but it everything that is the opposite to the positive gives the positive its meaning in relation to the overall whole and the divine. Um, and that also that the negative is technically speaking a valid and correct interpretation of the divine, of the, un the unity. It's just a different perspective on it. Without the unity, you get different perspectives. Um, with the unity, you just simply get truth. Uh, and so, so there's this duality, let's say good and evil. Uh, there's a, a distinction there. Well, between positive and negative, let's say. And it's, there might be a reason why God would create the negative and the positive rather than as being the abundant. And that the, it can understand itself and there not be internal contradictions perhaps if you separate out the positive and the negative so that through the interplay of the positive and negative in reality in the universe, God knows itself better. But just because that is what the law of one speaks of and stuff, that doesn't mean that that's what Nietzsche was talking about. The alternative is that this being being alluded to here is the demiurge, 
because the demiurge is thought of as a being that creates and destroys in equal measure and what it creates is perverse it's distorted uh, as to which is being referred to here i don't know so um i guess i'm going to continue Perhaps the profundity of this counter-moral tendency is best gorged by the discreet and hostile silence with which Christianity is treated throughout the whole book. Christianity has the most extravagant elaboration of the moral theme that humanity has ever heard. Truly, nothing could ever be more opposed to the purely aesthetic interpretation and justification of the world as taught in this book than the Christian doctrine, which is only moral and seeks only to be moral with its absolute standards, the truth of God, for example, which regulates art, all art to the realm of falsehood. It denies, condemns and damns it. In this system of ideas and values, which must be hostile to art, if it is to be in any way consistent with its principles. I had always sensed hostility to life, a furious vindictive distaste for life itself, for all life is based on appearance, art, deception, point of view, the necessity of perspective and error. From the start, Christianity was essentially and fundamentally and the embodiment of disgust and antipathy for life, merely disguised, concealed, and got up as the belief in an other or better life. Hmm. I don't include Gnosticism under this. And I don't know necessarily that Nietzsche was either, because Nietzsche is primarily dealing with the Christianity that we're primarily acquainted with here. Um, Gnosticism is sufficiently different. Um, I would say it's dealing with the, what Christianity became, became, especially with Catholicism and Orthodox. Um, and then later with Protestantism as well, not so much the heresies of it, or that was that which was deemed heresy. There is something very interesting here, though, and this idea that it's hostile to life. Now, obviously, life is linked to the divine. Although then he says life is based on the deception, I can't agree with. Um, and also point of view he seems to refer to as perspective. Um, I see those things as actually part of the illusion in a sense. Um, and that truth is a divine thing. But um, there is a there is something he's getting across here that I agree with, though. And the art for... Um, art the way everything all art had to be had to fit within the mold that the religion established and if it wasn't that it was a problem it couldn't be appreciation of the divine directly it had to be within the doctrine right and there was certainly an hostility to life in how much it's about the doctrine itself and following the rules and the rituals of the doctrine and that is hostile to life and it's restrictive. It's about limitation. 
It's not about the, an abundant spirituality, uh, but quite the opposite. And the, the science, the limitation of the of physicalism that came later, in fact, I would say is, has, has its precedent originally in, in Christianity. And it, and I would say, because it was influenced by the Archons, by Serbus' self-beings, and it was Romanized, and the Roman Empire was, in a sense, Serbus to self. The embodiment of disgust and antipathy for life, merely disguised, concealed, got up as the belief in an other or better life. Hatred of the world, the, the condemnation of emotions, the fear of beauty and sensuality, a transcendental world invented to invented the better to slander this one. Basically a yearning for non-existence, the repose until the Sabbath of Sabbaths. All of this along with Christianity's uncon unconditional resolve to acknowledge only moral values struck me as the most dangerous and sinister of all possible manifestations of will to decline. At least the very at the very least, a sign of the most profound affliction, fatigue, sullenness, exhaustion, impoverishment of life. For in the face of morality, particularly Christian unconditional morality, life must constantly and inevitably be in the wrong, because life is something constantly amoral, in the end, crushed beneath the weight of contempt and eternal denial. Life must be felt to be undesirable, valueless in itself. Morality itself, might morality not be a will to the denial of life, the secret instinct of annihilation, a principle of decay, trivialization, a slander, the beginning of the end? And hence, the danger to end all dangers. So then, with this question of a book, my instinct, my affirmative instinct for life, turned against morality and invented a fundamentally opposite doctrine and valuation of life, purely artistic and anti-Christian. What shall I call it? As a philologist and man of letters, I baptized it, not without a degree of license. For those, for who knows what the true name of the Antichrist, with the name of a Greek god, I call it the Dionysiac. Well, there's certainly a boldness to this. So, Hmm. There is in organized religious doctrine and this insistence on control of people control into following it has to be a certain way you need to follow this or well, as a time when violence was committed against you, forced into line, like um, this, that is anti-life. And Christianity was very much like that. And even art itself was restricted. There wasn't this vibrant bursting out of artistic creativity and 
intuition without restriction that is more truly linked with the divine. No, 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 it had to be restricted for else if, if it explored beyond those boundaries, that might be too dangerous, right? But at the same time, there was a denial of the darkness while at the same time shrouding people in darkness and limitation and restriction. So there's an encouragement of spiritual bypassing in a sense, um, not confronting negative emotion, not confronting the negativity of life, but instead kind of denying it and focusing on there is only God, there is only God, there is only love and light. And there is this principle in, in Christianity, definitely, that even though there was a belief in Satan or what have you, um, there was a sense in which only the positive was even recognized, but there was still a lot of negative going on. It just wasn't recognized. Well, I need to, I'll just let the light shine in me. There's certainly a lot of um, darkness in the Crusades, but it's a door of darkness that denies that it's darkness. The Crusader is one who, while hacking and slashing in brutal ways, is insistent they are of pure light, that they are purely righteous in every single way, and that the blood on them is a mark, is the blood of the evil ones who is basically like, well, they deny the darkness even in their, even that which is so apparent in their actions, and they call it light. They insist that it's light. Um, it's utterly egoic um, in the most ugly way. Um, and the honest recognition of the ugly is in a way closer to the divine beauty because it, it doesn't shy away from that darkness, but it doesn't pretend that the darkness is itself light, um, which the Crusaders, as they were talk, boasting about to the Pope about how the blood in Jerusalem was knee deep as they marched in and just started killing people and saying, oh, God's all sort out his own, right? At least the Greeks, when they went in their wars and then enslaved the people they defeated, at least they had the honesty to, to not pretend it was of the light. And they were honest about how it was, you know. Um, there was this, I can't remember who it's called, who said it, but there was this Athenian who, general or something, like when there are these people of Melos or something, this island, they didn't want to take a side between in the war between the Athenians and the Spartans. And what happened in the end is they got crushed by the Athenians because they wanted, because it's a war where they wanted control and power and they didn't want people not taking a side. They, they wanted 
it was basically you take our side or we take you over, right? And and then when they were pleading for mercy, it was basically said to them, uh, the strong will do what they must, that will do what they wish, and the weak will suffer what they must. That is, and I'm not justifying that in any way, that's brutal and messed up, right? But there's an honesty there that um, Christendom did not have. It is clear what I already dare to tackle. Is it clear what task I already dared to tackle with this book? Now that how I now regret that I do not have the courage or the immodesty to permit myself a new language as well, in all respects, in keeping with such new ideas and risky innovations, that I told was with Schopenhauerian and Kantian formulae to express strange and new valuations fundamentally opposed to the spirit and taste of Kant and Schopenhauer. What, after all, were Schopenhauer's ideas about tragedy? In the second part of his world as will and representation, he says, what gives anything tragic, whatever the form in which it appears, in characteristic tendency to the sublime, is the dawning of the knowledge that the world and life can give no true satisfaction that there are therefore not worth our attachment to them. It is in this that the tragic spirit consists accordingly. It leads to resignation. Oh, how differently Dionysus spoke to me. How far I was then from all that resignationism. But the book contains something far worse, something that I now regret even more than having obscured and spoiled Dionysiac intimate. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm really speaking this one out well, aren't I? Inter <clears throat> Where was I? <laughs> Um, intimidations with Schopenhauer formulae, Schopenhauerian formulae. The fact that I spoiled the grandiose Greek problem as I saw it by adulterating it with the most modern ideas, that I introduced hopes where all was hopeless, where everything was too clearly indicated an ending, or too clearly indicated an ending, that I, on the basis of the most recent German mu music began to fab fabulate about the German spirit as if, it, as if it were on the point of discovering refinding itself. At a time when the German spirit, which not long before had had the will to conquer Europe, the strength to lead Europe, had in its last war and testament finally abdicated the task under the pompous pretext of founding an empire and was making the transition to mediocrity, democracy and modern ideas. In the intervening period, in fact, I have learned to think hopelessly and mercilessly enough about the German spirit, and likewise about contemporary German music, which is romantic through and through, and the most un-Greek of all possible art forms. 
but also a narcotic of the worst kind, doubly dangerous to the, to a people beloved of intoxication, which hails a lack of clarity as a virtue. It hails lack of clarity as a virtue, with its dual properties of being both an intoxicating and befogling narcotic. And yet, apart, of course, from all the impetuous hopes and applications to contemporary issues, which was I spoiled my first book, the great Dionysiac question mark remains, also as regards to music. How would a music be that was not romantic in origin, as Germanic music is, but, but Dionysiac? This is um, in some ways difficult to read because bit, some of it aligns and some of it doesn't um, with what with my perspective, or perhaps it's hard to discern exactly what's being said. I mean, certainly that they could have, the idea that the German people, let's say, they could have led Europe, but not dominated it. By leading Europe, he means culturally, but in a vibrant, um, artistic way, in, a, in an abundant way, perhaps. And that instead they, they, they went with the pompous pretext of founding an empire, but at the same time transitioning to mediocrity, democracy, and modern ideas. There's a contradiction there, or it looks like there is. This is not as easy for me to interpret. I, I will definitely say that when compared to the other things I read. But certainly, by focusing on self-interest, perhaps, on, no. It's hard to make it, he seems to be saying two contradictory things, but I must be missing the point. I don't like that I'm missing the point, but there we go. I'll just carry on. But what, my good man, is romanticism if it is not your book? How can the profound hatred of the contemporary age, reality, and the modern idea be taken further than it is in your artistic artist, artist metaphysics, which would rather believe in nothing, in the devil, than the... Than, the, the now. Does a ground ba base of anger and destructive rage not growl through all your conceptual ear-seducing vocal art, a furious resolution against everything contemporary, a will that seems not too much removed from practical nihilism and which seems to say, I would rather nothing were true than you were right, that your truth should triumph. I'm getting a sense that there's a sort of dialectic here. And I don't mean necessarily Hegelian, but certainly that he's, he's going from one, he's on like a pendulum 
or like there's a wave, right? And he's going from one position to another. And it's not, he's writing it's, this itself with a, perhaps it could be like this, perhaps it could be like that. And he's contrasting different positions and he's like triangulating something. He's talking around something rather than directly going to it. Um, perhaps I'm just not used to reading Nietzsche and I'm not used to a style. It could be that. But this is almost da 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 This is rhythmic vibe I'm getting just reading this. It's really interesting. Just the way Nietzsche reads is intriguing to me. You think he's saying one thing and he thinks he's saying something else and it's like, what is he saying? <laughs> Listen yourself, my dear pessimist, my dear idolater of art, with, more, with a more open ear to a single passage taken from your book, that not uneloquent dragon-slaying passage, which might sound insidiously pied piperish to innocent young ears and hearts. Is that not the good old romantic credo of 1830 lurking behind the mask of the pessimism of 1850? And behind it, the introduction to the more familiar romantic finale Break, break down, return and collapse before an old faith, before the old God, what? Is your pessimistic book not itself a piece of anti-Hellenism and romanticism? Is it not itself something as intoxicating as it's is befogging? A narcotic at any rate, even a piece of music, of German music. But listen, there's a quote here, or something. Let us imagine a rising generation with such undaunted gaze, with such a heroic, heroic proclivity for the tremendous. Let us imagine the bold stride of those dragon slayers, the proud audacity with which they turn their backs on all the weaklings' doctrines that lie within that optimism, in order to live resolutely in all that they do. Must the tragic man in that culture trained through his self-education for seriousness and terror, not inevitably yearn for a new art of metaphysical consolation, tragedy as his Helen, and to exclaim as false did, Faust did. And should I not with utmost yearning seek to bring life that creature most, and should I not with utmost yearning seek to bring to life that creature most unique? So what's being said here? It is an attempt at self-criticism and he's criticizing himself from one angle and from an opposite angle. I imagine he, he, he almost seems like he's doing a, actually it does seem a bit like the Hegelian uh, dialectic in a sense here. Like he's gonna say, all right, Critique it, criticize them from its own position for one side. Um, criticize it from the other side. Um, find some way of integrating the two and some new position that is informed by those two critics, critiques. And yet is, and is beyond them in some sense, even if it's in some sense critiqued by it. 
Is this, hmm, is he talking about the Greeks or himself here? So there's an optimistic age and, or an optimistic time, but it seems like on some level it's denying part of reality, the dark part of reality. And there's this urge perhaps that one might have an urge for for tragedy as a to get a connection with the real. I don't know. Um, would it not be necessary? No, thrice no, you young romantics. Would it not be necessary? But it is very likely that it will end up like that, and you will end up like that, consoled as it is written, for all your self-education in gravity and terror, metaphysically consoled. In short, as romantics end up, Christian, no. You ought first to learn the art of this worldly consolation. You ought to learn to laugh, my young friends, if you are determined to remain pessimists. Perhaps as laughers, you will consign all metaphysical consolations to the devil and metaphysics in front of all the rest. Or to say, say it in the language of the Dionysic monster called Zarathustra, lift up your hearts, my brothers, high, higher, and don't forget your legs. Lift up your legs too, good dancers, and even better, stand on your heads. This laughter's crown, this rosary crown, but I, put, I myself put on this crown. I myself pronounce my laughter holy. I could not find no one else today strong enough for that. I could find no one else today strong enough for that. Zarathustra the dancer, Zarathustra the light one, who beckons with his wings poised for flight, beckoning to all the birds poised and ready, blissfully flighty. Zarathustra the soothsayer, Zarathustra the soothsayer, not impatient, not unconditional, who loves leaps and caprices. I crown myself with this crown, this crown of laughter, the rosary crown. To you, my brothers, I throw this crown. I pronounced laughter holy. You, you hire men, learn to laugh. So that is valuable, learning to laugh. You know, I'm just kind of waiting for that light to just sort of move to a point where it's no longer making me look like really bright. If you're just listening, you can't see, but the light is shining my face really brightly. Yeah. Oh, well. So there's this. Laughter is important. The. There is something divine about laughter and humor. There's joy to it. There's heart to it. Um, laughter can help you out of depression. Um, it can help you out of darkness. Because recognition of the absurd, there's a higher awareness to that and there's 
a joy in that awareness. Um, to be so serious is to be lacking heart. To be not so serious, does, there's a playfulness to it. Children know how to laugh easily, don't they? Usually, unless they've been forced to grow up early. Um, yeah, and, and we to, to learn to be an adult is to learn how to stop laughing. Seems like hard learning to me. Um, so perhaps he's triangulating. He criticizes one position and criticizes the opposite and establishes both positions as untenable and then proposes an integrated position, a synthesis position, perhaps. Is what he's doing ultimately Hegelian? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I like the conclusion reached in this uh, attempt at self-criticism section. So now we've got We've got preface to Richard Wagner. Will I read this out? I feel like skipping that and just getting straight to the meat of it. So here we are, the birth of tragedy. We shall have gained much for the science of aesthetics when we have succeeded in perceiving directly and not only through logical reasoning that art derives its continuous development from the duality of Apolline and Dionysiac, just as the reproduction of species depends on the duality of the species with its constant duality of the sexes with its constant conflicts and periodic intervening reconciliations. These terms are borrowed from the Greeks, who revealed the profound mysteries of their artistic doctrines to the discerning mind, not in concepts, but in the vividly clear forms of their deities. To the two gods of art, Apollo and Dionysus, we owe our recognition that in the Greek world there is a tremendous opposition, as regards both origins and aims, between the Apolline art of the sculptor and the non-visual. Dionysic art or music between the Apolline art of the sculptor and the non-visual Dionysic art of, the mu of music. Both these two very different tendencies walk side by side, usually in violent opposition to one, other, one another, inciting one another to ever more powerful births, perpetuating the struggle of the opposition only apparently bridged by the word art, until finally, by a metaphysical miracle of the Hellenic will, the two seem to be coupled. And in this coupling, they seem at last to forget the work of art that is as Dionysiac as it is Apollyon, Attic tragedy. So Attic refers to Athenians and a, tra a tragedy 
Greek theater and tragedy that we typically, I would say that is probably being associated with the, the attic here, um, A-T-T-I-C. Um, and it's a unison of opposites between Dionysiac and Apolline. That, that is clear just from reading the paragraph. And what I know from tragedy when I studied English, because the, the Renaissance uh, tragedies uh, were very much based on the Greek format, is that there's a pride before the fall dynamic. There's a rise and a fall, and it's like this cycle idea. And there's basically a character has a fatal flaw. And because of this fatal flaw, despite of his rise, um, or her rise, this fatal flaw leads to their downfall. And through the tragedy, there's a catharsis. There's a sense of release that people feel afterwards. And I had the sense that viewed from that angle, given that it's for the audience in some sense, that the, that the tragedy, the Greek tragedy format, the Greek tragedy is, it's in a sense the opposite of spiritual bypassing. It is in an individuating process, it, or at the very least, it, it allows people to confront the shadow and the negative. And in its, its artistic, in its acknowledgement of two different aspects of art, Dionysic and Neapolitan, the two different tendencies, it, and keep in mind it mentioned births here, and birth is creation, and is linked to love and creation of the divine and that a struggle between two things which are united. Um, that there's something, even though it's sad, it's beautiful. And you, you appreciate the light ever more for the darkness that it's contrasted with. Um, and I'm sure there's much more to it. And let's get, carry on. To reach a better understanding of these two tendencies, let us first conceive them as separate art worlds of dream and intoxication, two physiological states which contrast similarly to the Apolline and the Dionysiac. It was in dreams, according to Lucretius, that the, the wonderful forms of the deities first appeared before the souls of men. In dreams that the great sculptors saw first the delightful bodies of superhuman beings, and the Hellenic poet, if questioned about the mysteries of poetic creation, would also have referred to dreams and might have instructed his listeners much as Hans Sachs instructs us in D. Meistersinger. It is the poet's task, my friends, to note his dreams to comprehend. Mankind's most true delusion seems to be revealed to him in dreams. All poesy and versification is merely dreams, dream interpretation. The beautiful illusion of the dream worlds in the creation of which every man is a consummate artist is a precondition of all visual art. And indeed, as we shall see, of an important amount of poetry. We take pleasure in the immediate apprehension of form 
All shapes speak to us and nothing is indifferent or un unnecessary. But even when this dream reality is presented to us with the greatest intensity, we still have a glimmering awareness that it is an illusion. That is my experience, at least. And I could cite many proofs, including the statements of the poets to vouch for this frequency, its normality. Or maybe there's a sense that it is an illusion in a sense of it's alluding to something higher. And even if it's, there's something divine about art, it's a mere imitation of what it's alluding to. And of what it's alluded, what is alluded to, it's truly, it, there's something being pointed to by art that it's not inherent to it. Although on the other hand, you could say, what if it's embodying a higher divine beauty that is channeled through the artist itself? Hmm. Men of philosophy even have a sense that beneath the reality in which we live, there is a hidden there is hidden a second, quite different world, and that our world, own world is therefore an illusion. And Schopenhauer actually says that the gift of being able at times to see men and objects as mere phantoms or dream images is a mark of the philosophical capacity. Well, I would agree with that. There's certainly, and Plato's cave alludes to that, certainly. This idea that there's this, a deeper world beyond the mere uh, phenomenon or world of physical things that we see in uh, day-to-day life. Thus the man who is responsible, thus the man who is responsive to artistic stimuli reacts to the reality of dreams as does the philosopher to the reality of existence. He observes closely and he enjoys his observation for it is out of these images that he interprets life, out of these processes that he trains himself for life. And keep in mind that observation is particularly important, especially when it's observation of your own mind and ego. That's mindfulness. It is not only pleasant and agreeable images that he experiences with such, a uni such universal understanding. The serious, the gloomy, the sad and the profound. The sudden restraints, the mockeries of chance, fearful expectations, in short, the whole divine comedy of life, the inferno included, passes before him, not only as a shadow play, for he too lives and suffers through the scenes, these scenes, and yet also not without the fleeting sense of illusion. Perhaps many, like myself, can remember calling out to themselves in encouragement amid the perils and terrors of the dream. And with success, it is a dream. I want to dream on. Just as I have often been told of people who've been able to continue one and the same dream over three and more successive nights, facts which clearly show that our innermost being, our common foundation, experiences dreams with profound pleasure of joyful necessity. Interesting. Perhaps 
one of the greatest joys of life can come from being aware of the illusion and partaking in it nonetheless. For I don't think spirituality is about refusing to engage in anything not of the purest Godhead. Like it's it's not just the divine and nothing else is real and never engage in any of it. It's like be, be aware that there is more to this, that it's ultimately illusion, that this is we are delving in, in a sense, a holographic reality of limitation, of duality and such, and that we can engage in that while knowing that there's really a wholeness to everything and that everything's really connected. And you can see even it's the attachment to the dream of life that leads one astray, right? If you see the shadow in the wall and you attach them and you go, oh no, whoa, the shadows, they're so terrible shadows. And you get your ego involved in the shadows and that's one thing, but you don't need to be a, live an aesthetic life or um, you don't need to be a monk living in a monastery just because you acknowledge that there's allusion to the physical reality we live in. The same... Oh, wait, there's another thought. There's something, maybe something Nietzsche's getting at in his work is the idea that the problem with Christianity or at least mainstream Christianity is what became of it is that there's this vibrancy to life, which comes from well, understanding that it's kind of a dream that playfully engaging like a child in, in life, nonetheless, in all its vibrancy and dynamism, um, in all of its different shades, rather, and colors, rather than denying all that and eschewing all that for just a sense of purity. And if you're just following doctrine to get that sense of purity, then that's an illusion anyway. That's like a blue pill, right? Um, where perhaps he's talking about taking the red pill in a sense. This same joyful necessity of dream experiences was also expressed by the Greeks in the figure of Apollo. Apollo, the deity of all plastic forces, is also the soothsaying god. Etymologically, the shining one, the deity of light, he also holds sway over the beautiful illusion of the inner fantasy world. The higher truth, the perfection of these states of contrast to imperfectly comprehensible daily reality, the deep awareness of nature healing and helping in sleep and dreams. 
is at the same time the symbolic analogue of soothsaying powers and of general, of art in general, through which life is made possible and worth living. But our image of Apollo must incorporate the delicate line that the dream image may not overstep without becoming pathological, in which case illusion would deceive us as solid reality. It needs that restraining boundary, that freedom from wilder impulses, that sagacious calm of the sculpture god. His eye must be sun-like, as bespits his origin. Even should it rage and show displeasure, it still bears the solemnity of the beautiful illusion. And thus we might say of Apollo what Schopenhauer said of men caught up in the veil of Maya, the world as well as representation and representation. One page 352. Just as a boatman sits in his little boat, trusting his fragile craft in a stormy sea, which boundless in every direction rises and falls in howling mountainous waves. So in the midst of a world full of suffering, the individual man calmly sits, supported by and trusting the principium individuationis. Indeed, it might be said of Apollo that the unshaken faith in that principium and the peaceful stillness of the man caught up in it have found their most sublime expression in him. And we might even describe Apollo as the glorious divine image of the principium individuinitis, individuationness, whose gestures and looks all the delight, wisdom and beauty of illusion speak to us. In that stillness, perhaps, is something, is perhaps a presence, a the divine I am presence, perhaps. And at the same time, it, it, it confronts the illusion as to the Apollonian perspective, the illusion is beautiful and is accepted. But that it's an illusion is accepted, perhaps. And is the shining one, deity of light, there is a illumination to that, right? And The, the light shows clarity in the face of illusion. And yet the way the Apollonian has been described well, the higher truth, the perfection of these states in contrast to the imperfectly comprehensible daily reality. The question is what's the illusion, right? the daily reality or the beyond. Um, I would say the daily reality is actually the illusion. Um, but nevertheless, there's a freedom from wilder impulses. It's calmly just observing in a stormy sea 
and action being um, from mentally being of that observing presence, perhaps. Though, perhaps I'm putting something, my own bias as this. Indeed, it might be said of Apollo that the unshaken faith in the Principium and the peaceful stillness of the man caught up in, in it have found their most sublime expression in him. And we might even describe Apollo as a glorious divine image of the Principian, Principium Individualis, from which gestures and looks all the delight, wisdom and beauty of illusion speak to us. In the same passage, Schopenhauer has described a tremendous dread that grips man when he suddenly loses his way amidst the cognitive forms of appearance, because the principle of sufficient reason in one of its forms seems suspended. And now I've heard that there's a, there's a thin line between dread and beauty. Um, or perhaps what's being alluded to here is the attachment to the steady idea of regular day-to-day -day reality when the illusion is broken dread being felt um but the illusion being broken is important and if dread is felt one isn't one has more in the work to do and that shows that If we add to this dread the blissful ecstasy, which prompted by the same fragmentation of the Principium Individuationis, rises up from man's innermost core, indeed from nature, we have vouchsafed a glimpse into the nature of the Dionysiac, most immediately understandable to us in the analogy of intoxication. Under the influence of the narcotic potion hymned by all primitive men and peoples, or in the powerful approach of spring, joyfully penetrating the whole of nature, those Dionysiac urges are awakened and they grow more intense subjectively. And as they grow more intense, subjectively becomes a complete forgetting of the self. In medieval Germany too, the same Dionysiac power sent singing and dancing throngs, constantly increasing, wandering from place to place. In those dances of St. John and St. Vitus, we can recognize the Bacchic choruses of the Greeks with their prehistory in Asia Minor, as far back as Babylon and the Orgiastic Sakia. Some people, either through lack of experience or through obtuseness, turn away with pity or contempt from phenomena such as these folk diseases, bolstered by a sense of their own sanity. These poor creatures have no idea how blighted and ghostly this sanity of their sounds when the glowing life of Dionysic revelers thunders past them. And there's something, the Dionysiac could certainly be said to be lacking in those of the physicalist atheistic persuasion. Um, I'm not, I don't really feel confident in saying that physicalism is Apollonian, but certainly there is the Dionysiac, the Dionysiac is lacking there. For it, it reminds me of that, that sanity 
of focusing on, we must have purely rational sense-making. We must not partake in this irrational, illogical, unprovable, unscientific um, spirituality, right? Or revelry or whatever, right? There can be a revelry in being in the moment, a, a, maybe an intoxication or maybe a, a joy in annihilation of the self, right? Not annihilation, really. I'm, I'm being uh, carried away a bit. But the idea that, you know, you, you let go of the ego and you, you just like one with the universe and like, oh, this is wonderful, oh, right? And to those who are like, we must be rational or logical, or those of uh, this, those who feel that they are the restrained doctrinal sanity, say, that is ultimately neurotic, um, the repressed neuro neurotic quote sanity or at least which claims its sanity which it does not deal with these this high flying emotion but nevertheless it, it doesn't really it's still got that emotion it's just repressing to the unconscious it's, it's it's not dealt with and cleared it's just denied and so yeah and um it's referred to as quote sanity by Nietzsche himself here and uh, there's something blighted and ghostly ghostly is in the, the lean lacking form and substance I mean like blighted is in it's desolate because it's lacking life it's lacking love it's lacking emotion it's just You could say it's like being an empty shell, but at the same time, it's like maybe there's something to it of being filled, filled with broiling soup. And on the surface, it's like, no, it must be purely like plastered over, right? But every now and again, you get a volcanic eruption from it that's uncontrolled. Um, at least those who engage in that revelry have an outlet. Right. And keep in mind that he, he does refer to this Dionysiac activity here. He seems to be referring to it in a way that he's referring to it as spiritual, or at least here he is. He's not referring to orgies. No, not to say that he definitely is excluding that. I don't know. But he doesn't seem to, he's more dealing with two artistic vibes that are different. Not only is the bond between man and man sealed by Dionysian magic, alienated, hostile, or subjugated nature too, celebrates her reconciliation with her lost son, man. Gaia is linked with that nature that is so often alienated and subjugated, right? The earth gladly offers up her gifts, 
and the ferocious creatures of the cliffs and the desert peacefully draw near. The chariot of Dionysus is piled high with flowers and garlands. Under the yoke, under its yoke stride tigers and panthers. If we were to turn Beethoven's Hymn of Joy into a painting and not restrain the imagination even to the, as the multitudes bowed awestruck into the dust, this would bring us close to Dionysiac, to the Dionysiac. Now, if you want um, a theme to this concept, I would listen to that. I don't even know what it sounds like, but might be an idea. That's a luxury you have that I don't have right now because it's not, that doesn't really feel practical if we do that. And I could fiddle around turning my phone on and do that, but I'm not going to do that. Um, now the slave is a free man. Now all the rigid and hostile boundaries that distress despotism or impudent fashion have erected between man and man break down. Now, with the gospel of world harmony, each man feels himself not only united, reconciled, and at one with his neighbor, but but one with him, as the veil of Maya has been rent and now hung in rags before the mysterious primal oneness. Now, that sounds good to me. Now, if you're into mysticism, I'm sure that sounds good to you. I like Dionysianism. Um, there's certainly something to that um, quiet observation, um, that quiet, calm observation, without wild impulses. That nonetheless, it's not carried away by the the storm of emotion. There's a groundedness to the Apollonian, right? And there is a a high flying to the Dionysian I would say both have heart to them but now this is just me spitboarding here but or something like perhaps if we were talking chakras um Apollonian would be a healthy balance of the first four chakras red yellow red, orange, yellow, and green, green being heart chakra, the bottom four, right? So you've got the foundation, no, to get to a chakra, you need to have the chakra below it opened and flowing, right? And basically it's activating the first three so that the heart is activated. There's a grounding this because your bottom chakras are open but your higher ones aren't. So you've got a solid grounding and your heart's open. And that perhaps you can just observe your own thoughts, observe what's going on and not be carried away with emotion and ego and stuff like that. And perhaps what Dionysian is, is is kind of like having all the chakras or at least the top set, all set, all but the crown chakra or all of them perhaps open and this free-flowing ecstasy of the divine but perhaps it's um it might be less grounded and there's a potential there for being knocked off kilter more but there's also more spiritual ecstasy and more connection 
the divine that can be found there. Perhaps that's just what resonates or something. Singing and dancing, man expresses himself as a member of a higher community. He has forgotten how to walk and talk, and he is about to fly dancing into the heavens. His gestures express enchantment. Just as the animals now speak and the earth yields up milk and honey, he now gives voice to supernatural sounds. He feels like a god. He himself now walks about enraptured and elated as he saw the gods walk in dreams. Man is no longer an artist. He has become a work of art. The artistic power of the whole of nature reveals itself to the supreme gratification of the primal oneness amid the paroxysms of intoxication. The noblest clay, the most precious marble, man, is needed and hewn here. And to the chisel blows of the Dionysiac world artist, there echoes the cry of Eleusinian mysteries. Do you bow low multitudes? Do you sense the creator world? We have so far considered the Apolline and its opposite, the Dionysiac, as artistic powers which spring from nature itself without the mediation of the human artist and which and in which nature's artistic urges are immediately and directly satisfied. On the one hand, as the world of dream images, whose perfection is not at all dependent on the intellectual accomplishments of the artistic culture of the individual. On the other hand, an, an, an ecstatic, pardon me. On the other hand, an ecstatic, ecstatic, is that, wow. It is exactly as I was saying it, I'm just doubting it for some reason. The anesthetic reality, which again, pays no heed to the individual and even seeks to destroy individuality and redeem it with a sense of mystical sense of unity. I'll say that again, on the one hand, as a world of dream images whose perfection is not at all dependent on the intellectual accomplishments or artistic culture of the individual. On the other hand, an aesthetic, 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 aesthetic reality, which again pays no heed to the individual, but even seeks to destroy individuality and redeem it with the mystic sense of unity. Faced with these immediate artistic states in nature. Every artist is an imitator, either an Apollonian dream artist or a Dionysic aesthetic artist, or else, for example, in Greek tragedy, a dream artist and an aesthetic artist at one and the same time. Um, certainly, I did mention this idea that um, there's an imitation of the true wholeness um, or the true unity of the true divine where there's an imitation of it it's not truly that because we are in the we are not we are in incarnation we are in the physical world the holographic world perhaps and we are not in the pure state of unity But you can have both at the same time in Greek tragedy, for example. 
This is how we must imagine him as he sinks down, lonely and apart from the reveling choruses in Dionysiac drunkenness and mystical self-negation as his own condition, his unity with the utmost core of the world is revealed to him in a symbolic dream image. Having established these general premises and oppositions, let us look at the Greeks in order to assess to what degree and to what extent those, those, those natural artistic impulses were developed in them. This will lead us to a more profound understanding and appreciation of the Greek artist's relation to his archetypes. To quote Aristotle, the imitation of nature, despite all their dream literature and the many dream anecdotes, we can only surmise the nature of the dreams of the Greeks, but we can do so with a fair degree of assurance. Given the incredible accuracy of their eyes, with their brilliant and frank delight in color, we can hardly refrain from assuming the logical causality of lines and contours, con colors and groups that put later generalizations to shame, a sequence of scenes like those in their best reliefs. Their perfection, if comparison is possible, would certainly justify us in describing the dreams of Greeks as Homers and Homer as a dreaming Greek in a more profound sense than that in which the modern man might compare himself in his dreaming with Shakespeare. On the other hand, we do not need to rely on conjecture when we consider the massive chasm that separates the Dionysiac Greeks from the Dionysiac barbarians. From all corners of the ancient world, ignoring the modern world for the time being, from Rome to Babylon, we can demonstrate the existence of Dionysiac festivals, which are at best related to the Greek festivals as a bearded satyr deriving his name and attributes from the goat, is related to Dionysus himself. Almost universally, the centre of the Ephesos festivals was an extravagant lack of sexual discipline, whose ways engulfed all the vulnerable rules of family life, venerable rules of family life. The most savage beasts of nature here were unleashed, even that repellent mixture of lust and cruelty that I have always held to be a witch's brew. It would seem that for some time, however, the Greeks were thoroughly secured and protected against the febrile excitements of these festivals, knowledge of which forced its way into the Greeks through every route of land and sea. The figure of Apollo rose up in all its pride and held out the Gorgon's head to those grotesque barbaric Dionysiac, the dangerous force which it had to contend with. It was the Indoric art that Apollo's majesty the majestic repudiating stance was immortalized. So, so we might disagree with his portrayal of the equivalent of the Dionysiac among those who weren't Greeks, those barbarians, right? That they, that they and their equivalent of Dionysianism engaged in sexual cruelty. Um, but there's certainly a, a contrast here. What he's pointing to is that Dionysianism isn't about sexual extravagance and certainly not sexual cruelty. 
it's it's certainly not the sort of thing that you that we hear about on say Epstein's Island not to lower the tone too much but that sort of thing is part of reality or at least has been um, I will mention here that there was the pedestry thing uh, with with the Greeks, the way there was the the veteran or the older man and the yeah the um, young teenagers and what happened there. Um, perhaps this is something that Nietzsche would attribute to the barbarian form of Dionysian impulses. Um, that's uh, that's one way of looking at it. And suddenly, what we can get gather from this is the Dionysiac is not hedonistic indulgence. It is much more like um, it's like being on more like being on DMT or magic mushrooms or like any sort of hallucinogenic sort of uh, connection with the divine. Um, it's divine. That's the key. Whereas it's not really divine. Um, orgies aren't exactly divine, are they? So, um, so yeah. This resistance has become quest more questionable, even impossible. When similar impulses emerged from the largest, deepest roots of Greek culture, now all the Delphic god could do was disarm his powerful opponent of his disruptive weapon by effective, effecting a timely reconciliation, the most important moment in the history of Greek religion. Wherever we look, we can observe the transformations wrought by this event. It was the reconciliation of two adversaries, clearly defining the boundaries that they were henceforward to respect and periodically, periodically exchanging gifts of honor. And again, there's a unison of opposites to this. Um, even if the duality is still recognized and the separating lines recognized, there's a unison of opposites here. And that, that's a good thing, certainly. Although, at least a step in that direction, because it says, fundamentally, the chasm had not been abridged. But if we consider how Dionysiac power revealed itself under the terms of that peace accord and establish a comparison with the Babylonian Sakea and its throwback of man to the condition of the tiger and the ape, we will be able to understand the meaning of those new festivals of world redemption and days of transfiguration. It was here that nature was first given its artistic celebration. Here, the break, that the breakdown of the principium individuationists became an artistic phenomenon. That terrible witch's brew of lust and cruelty had now lost its potency, and only the peculiar blend and duality of emotions among the Dionysiac revelers would cause it 
as medicines are called deadly poisons. The phenomenon that pain is experienced as joy, that jubilation, tear, tears, tormented cries from the breast, at the tears, tormented cries from the breast. At the moment of supreme joy, we hear the scream of horror or the yearning lamentation for something irrecoverably lost. Those Greek festivals reveal a sentimental trait in nature, as though she were bemoaning her fragmentation into individuals. Nietzsche recognized the fragmentation of nature into individuals, of the whole into the separated. That's interesting. The chanting and gestures of these revelers with their dual inspiration was something new and unheard of in the Homeric and Greek world. And Dionysiac music in particular induced feelings of awe and terror. Music was apparently already known as an Apollonian art, but only because of its rhythm, as regular as the sound of waves crashing against the store, shore, or the store, if there's flooding or something, right? <laughs> Uh, ha, 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 ha. The creative power of which was developed for the representation of Apollonian states. The music of Apollo was Dor Doric architecture transmuted into sounds, but only into suggestive sounds such as those of the Kethara. Care was taken to ensure that the one element held to be non-Apollonian was excluded, the very element of which Dionysiac music consisted, the overwhelming power of sound, the unified flow of melody and the utterly incomparable world of harmony. So, they each seem to have their value, but in different situations perhaps. Um, and it seems that what we have here is that the Dionysiac was not repressed, uh, while certainly in Christian, not always in Christianity, but often in Christianity, the Dionysiac was repressed. Um, it's certainly true that lustful fertility was suppressed, or at least officially, if you ignore that what Catholic priests may have been up to for a long time. Uh, and I'm alluding to Epstein Island sort of thing here. Because I don't think the elites engaging in that sort of thing is new. Now, but there's this, uh, the power of vibration of the power of the power of energy and vibration and frequency. Now, if you've ever heard of binaural beats and stuff like that, there's this power to vibration to sound to frequency. That what it can do is it can connect you to the harmony with nature, right? And this sounds like, or at least from we're going from from Nietzsche, is that the Apollonian holds back with that, Apolline, the Dionysiac doesn't. And that, the presence of both polarities, but without, but both in a divine way rather than a, in an unholy way. There's not the unholy, say Dionysiac 
if you could call it that. But it's it's, it's in a holy way, a divine way. Uh, and also to mention, uh, Maya is a reference to. I've heard. I, I don't know as clear as I would like to, but it's linked to. Um, spirituality fundamentally. I think it's, I can't remember where it was from though. The veal of Maya, the veal of forgetting seems to be referenced there. Okay, so in Dionysiac Dithoram, man's symbolic faculties are roused to their supreme intensity. A feeling never before experienced is struggling for expression. The destruction of the veil of Maya, oneness as a source of form, of nature itself. The essence of nature was now to find symbolic expression. A new world of symbols was required. The whole of the symbolism of the body, not only of the symbolism of the mouth, the eye, the word, but rhythmic motion of all the limbs of the body in the complete gesture of the dance. Then all the other symbolic forces, the forces of music, rhythm, dynamics, and harmony would suddenly find impetuous expression. In order to grasp this total liberation of all symbolic forces, man must already have reached the peak of self-negation, that, that peak of self-negation that seeks symbolic expression in those powers, the dith Dithoramic votary of votary of Dionysus is thus understood only by his fellows. With what astonishment the Apollonian Greek must have looked upon him, and his astonishment would only have intensified by its combination with the terror, not in the end so strange to him that his Apollonian consciousness alone, like the Abiel, hid that Dionysiac world from his view. And I'm reminded of this idea when I spoke of the idea that the Apollonian, um, he has, there's a connection to the divine in that, but not that breaking down of the barriers to the same extent. And perhaps that does align with the idea that it's the bottom four chakras, including the heart, that the opponent is about and a, and a grounding. Whereas it's especially the third eye that's activated in the Dionysiac. Hmm. I've made a fair bit of progress with this text already. Uh, how long is this section coming up? You know, this has been going on for a while. So even though I'm tempted to carry on, I feel like this is an interesting point to stop. Um, we've got a fair way into at least distinguishing between Apollyon and Apollyon and um, Dionysian. Um, yeah, this is pretty interesting. It certainly reads different from the critique of the text by Nietzsche that we started with. Um, it's certainly an easier read here. 
than it is at the beginning from Thus Spoke the Zarathustra. Um, I think that was what it was from. Yeah, um, in any case, in any case, I hope you enjoyed. It's certainly the first time I've done a reading from Nietzsche. But I think he, he grasps something, he definitely grasps something of what later became the new age, I suppose you could say, of mysticism. Yeah, mysticism. He, he grasped, he grasped uh, some of the insights there. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. I know Karen doing some of this. As you know, I vary what I, the readings will do a bit. Anyway, so enjoy your day. Uh, don't forget to balance the Dionysian and the Apollonian. So, um, bye for now. <laughs>